Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Hope you're having a great week. It's about to get a little bit better because we have an awesome hour of radio in store for you. This week, we are talking about great escapes, which is something that I had on my mind when we got on stage at the Alberta Street Pub in Portland because of a, a sort of crazy adventure that I'd been through recently. And I was telling our announcer, Elena Passarello, all about it. Um, let's pick things up on stage. I made an escape this week. I don't know if it was a great one, but I, I escaped like grievous bodily harm when I drove a monster truck in at the Monster Truck Training Academy in Paxton, Illinois. Three days ago, I was sitting in the cockpit of a monster truck, oh my God. driving around a dirt track where they teach people how to drive monster trucks. Well, uh, how long does it take to get a degree from Monster Truck University? Did you complete the training in the three days that you were there? Or Well, uh, let me answer that question this way. So I was doing this for, uh, for a TV gig. I work for CBS Sunday Morning. We went there to film me driving around in the monster truck, learning about monster trucking. And I kind of thought it was going to be like, put the TV guy in the truck and have him do a couple of loops. Mm -hmm. But it was like they turned the water up on the frog. <laughs> and I didn't know how, how much things were escalating until it was too late. Oh my God. <laughs> so I start off doing some circles and they're like, okay, that's going fine. And then they were teaching me how to drive really fast from like a stopped position. So you got a little stoplight that goes from red to green. And when it's green, you floor it. Oh my God. <laughs> and I, that was pretty scary because the things like got, I don't know, 1500 horsepower. It's a giant machine. So I did that and I was like, okay, that was scary. I'm glad that's done. And they said, now you're ready for the jump. <gasps> I was like, the what? <laughs> the what now? I realized in that moment that I needed to just channel like my inner nine-year-old <laughs> about to go off a bike jump, right? Okay. Like, but then when I remembered, oh, my inner nine-year-old was terrified of going off a bike <laughs> jump. He was just doing it because of peer pressure, which is exactly where I find myself as a 42-year-old man. I didn't want the people running the Monster Truck Academy to think that I was afraid to go off the jump. Okay, so that that uh, social fear is what kept you in the vehicle. And pointing it at the jump, and when the light turned green, flooring it oh my towards God. the jump. Now they give you one piece of advice for this, which is <laughs> whatever you do, do not hit the brakes. Which is, by the way, exactly what you want to do when you're terrified. Yeah. That is your most overriding instinct is to hit the brakes. Yeah. They're like, do not hit the brakes. If you hit the brakes while the truck is airborne, it will fall out of the sky. <laughs> the tires stop rotating and it just nosedives. And when it hits the ground, it breaks into a million pieces. And it's like a $250,000 truck. <laughs> so my main focus is impressing these monster truck dudes <laughs> and not hitting the brakes. So the light turns green. I smash the gas pedal. I'm going towards the jump. I go off the jump. I'm so focused on not hitting the brakes that I forget. The other thing is, at some point, let off the gas pedal. <laughs> because I land with the gas pedal still floored, which means the truck hits the ground and then just hangs a hard left, goes off a different jump no, no. that was not part of the plan, rolls off of the different jump, rolls over two times, and then comes, thank you, that is the response that that story, this story deserves. Shock and a little bit of like, wow, we're amazed you're here, Luke. Yeah. Thank you for that. It, it comes to a stop. Amazingly, back on the wheels. And you're seeing the world from the windshield, yeah. like going like a tumbler, like you're in a dryer. Yes. And I'm so afraid in this moment that I can't even make any sound. Like there's GoPro footage of me in the cab. <laughs> Two things. One, when you watch the footage, there's a point when the truck goes off the jump that I literally just close my eyes. Oh my God. <laughs> like Jesus, take the wheel. I'm in a scary carnival ride. Let's see how this goes. Forgetting that I was, in fact, in control of the vehicle, or supposedly. So the guys come over, and they take a look at the truck, and I've broken one of the wheels of the monster truck what? by rolling it over, which is the best news I've heard all day, because it means I don't have to do any more jumps. <laughs> and so I get out of the truck, and I'm feeling now like about as sort of manly as I, as I you know, 
ever do as a public radio host. Not you, traditionally one of the more manly careers. So you, when you you still had the wherewithal to be kind of proud and oh, feel kind of macho. Because yeah. I, 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 I had gone for it. I had committed to the jump. So I get out of the truck and I go, yeah, sorry, I broke your truck, guys. Like it was feeling very cool. And they were like, oh, we'll have it fixed in like 10 minutes. Wow. Then you can do some more jumps. And I was like, oh, no, really? Did you jump anymore? Yeah, like four more times. <laughs> but that's how much I didn't want them to think wow. that I was afraid. And then at the end of the whole thing, the guy in charge of it comes over and he's like, hey, man, I got some good news. You didn't really know this, but this was kind of a little bit of a testing ground, and you did well enough that now we're going to let you drive in a real Monster Jam event in Tampa. Wow. So I have earned the right wow. to do this in front of a bunch of people at a like an arena in Tampa, Florida, in a month. You're legit now. You like got your monster truck card. You're, you're gonna somebody's gonna announce you in one of those. Monster truck with Luke Burbank. You know. I honestly am gonna spend the next month just in constant dread about having to do this again. I have to figure out a way to tell them I don't want it. I'm afraid of the monster truck. Yeah, I mean that's gonna be the major. The uh, after all this time thinking about it, are yes. you? Because before you didn't think, you just exactly kind of left. before I didn't know how scary it was. Now I know, and it's gonna be. Uh, it's I don't know what's gonna happen. To be honest with you. Wow. Well, Godspeed, my friend. I hope Thank to see you. you for a new season of Livewire. Um, <laughs> well, if not, we know who your new host is, Elena Passarello, everyone. <laughs> my plan. Have you made any great escapes lately? <laughs> Man, I have nothing like that. Like, nothing. Like, the only, like, grievous bodily harm that I've ever risked is when I get stuck in clothes in dressing rooms. Like, and, like, the zipper doesn't work and I can't figure out, you know, do I... Do I call someone or do I uh, just wear it out of the dressing room and like have them scan the price tag with it still on me? One time I got stuck in a dressing room during a bra fitting, which if you've ever been for a professional bra fitting, it's a very intimate experience. Uh, the woman who was helping me with the bra fitting came back with all these brassieres and they come into the dressing room and, and sort of feel you up for a long time and you just sort of sadly sit there and I was waiting for her to come back with more tortured device bras and uh, then I couldn't get the dressing room unlocked and so she had to crawl <laughs> like like to add insult to injury but again she had to crawl out of the or into, into the dressing to rescue me in my bra fitting uh, after already kind of getting to second base with me several times and then she she had to help me get out of the thing. There's no monster truck, man. Well, but, but they did the announce that you were going to have to go be in a live bra show in Tampa. <laughs> that's right. You had qualified. <laughs> so that is where the stories are, in fact, similar. Um, this is Live Wire Radio, and we actually have a guest with us who has a lot of experience in making great escapes. Uh, she was a member of a traveling sideshow where she performed as, among other things, an escape artist. Her new book is The Electric Woman. Let's get Tessa Fontaine out here. Tessa, welcome to Livewire. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. Um, okay, so uh, your book is a memoir uh, kind of about a mother and a daughter and then a tragedy and then a rebirth of sorts um, by way of eating fire. Yeah, That old chestnut. As you do, yeah. Um, I want to start a little bit with you and your mom. What was your relationship like uh, before she, she became ill? Yeah, we had a really uh, a really tough relationship. I had a really hard time kind of trusting her, I think, when I was growing up. You know, mothers and daughters often have hard times with each other. I don't think that's a new story, but we just didn't get along very well. And I think, you know, most people, you sort of assume that at some point you'll gain some, you know, yet to be determined maturity and you'll get along. And then this really horrible thing happened and she had a massive stroke when I was 26. So she never regained her ability to speak or walk after the stroke. And so it, it completely changed our dynamic. It sort of made me reinvestigate a lot of the stories that I had believed to be true about her and our, and our relationship um, and, and to really let go of a lot of stuff. But it also made me think I, I was a really kind of fearful kid. I was pretty shy. And I like I remember um, playing in a river with some friends and they were jumping off of a rock that was, you know, 
I don't know, like 10 feet off the ground into the river. And I was just like, not a chance that I will do that. <laughs> not a chance. And so I should have channeled that during this whole monster yeah. truck situation. <laughs> not a chance. Yeah. Not a chance. Uh, but she had been a really, a, a pretty wild woman. She was a stunt. She used to perform stunts on top of surfers shoulders. And she was a fisherman out in, uh, off the coast here in Oregon actually, and, and just lived this really wild, bright life. And so, uh, in addition to kind of rethinking our relationship after she got sick, I kind of had to rethink like, what kind of person do I want to be actually, you know, do I, do I want to try to channel some of that bravery? So then a couple of years after your mom has this stroke and, and she's severely disabled by it, she and your stepdad decide to take this like dream trip to Italy, which right. sends you to like a circus sideshow, basically traveling yeah. sideshow. Like what was the relationship between those events? Yeah. Yeah. It's not the normal response, I suppose. Um, as they were kind of making these plans, um, this was about the time that I started learning that there was this one sideshow left in the United States, one sideshow, traditional sideshow that still traveled around and still had people who were fire eaters and snake charmers and sword swallowers. And, um, and I started just kind of I don't know, researching about them. And then I maybe fibbed a little bit and said I was a journalist. I was not a journalist. <laughs> um, but I went down there and, and eventually just with enough interviews, uh, I, or I was interviewing them and I think they were just like, oh, leave us alone. Just join the show already if you want to know what this is like. So when you said that you were a journalist and you went down there and started interviewing them, was it in the back of your head that you wanted to get involved from the get-go? No. It was like a project first and then all of a sudden the opportunity arose? It was like, it was like a project that I was was interested in writing and then the opportunity arose and I was like, oh no, I can't say no. Oh God, dear God, I can't say no to this. And, and it, a lot of it was like, what would my mom have done had she been invited to join a sideshow? Damn it. She would have done it. Right. <laughs> okay. All right. We've got to take a quick break. We're talking to Tessa Fontaine, author of the book, The Electric Woman. This is Livewire and we'll be right back. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Listen, you know in your heart of hearts that sitting around at work all day, that ain't great for you. But guess what? It's not just your heart of hearts. There's actually a lot of science backing that up, which is why Livewire partners with Fully, the company that believes people weren't meant to be glued to a chair all day. Fully has curated the best collection. And I've been there, by the way. I've met them. I've seen the stuff, and I can testify. They've got the best collection of standing desks, active sitting chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage us to move. Uh, I've got the TikTok stool. In fact, I'm sitting on it right now. I don't know if you can hear me rocking back and forth on it. But uh, the folks at Foley sent me this thing, and it is just a dream. Uh, it's comfortable to sit on, but it keeps me engaged in the work that I'm doing, keeps the blood flowing, and, uh, and it's really improved my life as I uh, work to host your favorite public radio show and podcast, known as Livewire, in case you needed a reminder. Anyway, if you would like to be better at what you're doing and stay more engaged, check out Fully. Get your body moving in your workspace by going to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully, desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, with Elena Passarello. We're at the Alberta Street Pub here in Portland. We have Tessa Fontaine here as well. Her book is The Electric Woman. Um, your, your mom suffered a, a very debilitating stroke. Uh, they weren't sure how long she was going to live. Then she takes this dream trip to Italy, even though she can't walk or talk. And so then you said, well... If I have a chance to join a sideshow, a traveling sideshow, you, you owe it to her and yourself to do it. Right. But you kind of didn't know how to do any sideshow stuff. So, like, where do you yeah. start if you're a basically normal person <laughs> being in yeah. a sideshow? Yeah. Not only could I not kind of do sideshow stuff, like, I can't do a cartwheel. I was <laughs> I was at zero. Um, so, so the boss had kind of invited me along without communicating, I think, to the actual road boss. And then the road boss was sent me this email and was like, all right, great, I hear you're a new performer. What can you do? And so I... Googled, uh, <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> what are the acts in a sideshow? <laughs> and I copied and pasted those and I sent back an email like, great news, here are my skills. <laughs> because I was afraid that if he knew that I couldn't do anything, he would not invite me, which is very reasonable. Um, <laughs> so then he was like, great, see you in two months. Um, and so then I decided that I should learn 
one thing. I thought I should know one thing before I went out there. And I'm from San Francisco and in the Bay Area, um, we're very lucky that we have fire eating classes that take place. They're probably here in Portland too. Actually, yes. yeah, <laughs> it's a major actually yeah. at Portland State University. Yeah. So, you, so you you got to like learn how to fire eat before you show up. Yeah. Uh, for the sideshow because like you at least promised that much. So, what was that like? I went to this class. There was one other guy in it who actually was a, a burner. He had lied to a separate circus sideshow <laughs> that he could <laughs> fire eat. We were in it together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, he was a stilt walker at Burning Man and he felt like he was too ordinary as a stilt walker at Burning Man. <laughs> he was just one of a crowd. And so he wanted to become a, the fire eating stilt walker at Burning Man. So we were in this class together. And so just right away, the teacher's kind of like, okay, you know, let your arm on fire. <laughs> that's, that's step one. Step right? one. Yeah. <laughs> you start, yeah, you start pretty quickly with, with lighting yourself on fire. And, and indeed, like, it seems a lot scarier than it is. I mean, I should say, no one try this at home, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, you kind of just start wiping this flaming torch. You dip it in white gas and you start wiping it along, um, your arms and legs and, and you watch all of your little arm hairs just quickly, you know, crumple and curl and singe and fall off. Um, and then within, I mean, within the first hour of, of getting to the class, we were putting it in our mouth and eating fire. Um, and I thought that, you know, I watched the other guy try it first. He was really hesitant. He couldn't get it very close. It seemed really natural. Um, she handed me the torch and I took a big breath and just put it directly deep into my mouth. <sighs> and she was just like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> You don't have many instincts for self-preservation. Yeah, you're just trusting her yeah. that I, I assume the saliva and other things in your mouth will make this okay, right? Right, right. Uh, but I mean, you know, like, what if it hadn't been okay? Yeah. Why do you think that you were able to get it closer to your face than the still walker? Still walker from Burning Man. Yeah. Right. Um, the only thing that I can really think of is I had a lot of desperation at that point. I was, I was really heartbroken about my mom. I was really unsure about what I was doing. It felt like there wasn't a lot to lose. And wow. so, you know, might as well light the inside of your body on fire. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what do you think accounts for the, the decline of the sideshow? It's not a very popular thing anymore. I mean, this is like the last one, basically. Why There used to be a big deal. What, what is it about the, the climate of our country these days that we're not interested? The bosses actually talk about this a lot, and sort of their speculation is it has to do with people aren't willing to be amazed in person anymore. Like, you see such extreme things on TV that seeing a person swallow a sword somehow doesn't seem that spectacular. Uh, wow. Like, we had some people come out of the show sometime and be like, ugh, there was not any blood at all. And we're like, we are actual humans. <laughs> right. This is not a video game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I think that's a piece of it. Um, I think also it's a, I mean, it's a spectacular art form. You know, it's dangerous. It's exciting. It's weird. Not all of it is very convincing. Like we had some pretty terrible illusions, a, <laughs> a spider, spider. <laughs> a, a woman's head and a spider body. I also had no head and four legs and, um, and like, you can't tell how it's done, but, but also, you know, I mean, you know, it's not real, except for some people who would be like, I can't believe that I just paid $2 and that was not a real spider headed woman. You're like, <laughs> You're like really? if that really existed, it would be $5. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It would not be $2. But, um, it seems like a big message of this book is that there's, I'm paraphrasing your exact words here. There's no trick to eating fire. You just have to eat it. Right. Right. Is that uh, something you've taken now into the rest of your life? Yeah, very much. Um, I used to have this idea that there were like, fearful people and brave people in the world and that I was just a fearful person. Um, and I think from eating fire and, and really learning a lot of the sideshow acts, I kind of came to understand that there aren't different kinds of people. It's just a matter of you're afraid of the thing and then you just do the thing anyway. Um, and that being afraid or even doing something that's going to hurt you physically hurt you a little bit, like swallowing a sword or escaping from chains. It doesn't feel good, but you just do it. Uh, and that was a really, really big lesson for me. Do you think if you were back uh, on that river, would you jump off that rock now? Oh, yeah. A swan dive. <laughs> Blindfolded. <laughs> Holding two flaming torches. Yes. That's Tessa Fontaine, everyone, right here on Livewire. The book is The Electric Woman. <laughs> All 
All right, Tessa, uh, we here at LiveWire, we really like to try to get to know our guests in the most real way possible. To that end, we have here with us an actual physical jar, okay? In this jar are the five essential questions of our time. Oh, boy. We call this the jar of truth. (laughs) Uh, Here's how this is going to work, Tessa. We want you to draw one of these questions out of the jar and then hand it to Elena Passarella, who will read the question. And we would like to get your most honest answer to one of these most important questions of our time. Great. Oh, Tessa, if you see a mediocre performance and the people around you stand to give an ovation, do you stand up or do you stay in your seat? Oh, I'm a stander. I'm going to be honest. No matter what. You know what? Okay. And here's the reason is I have been that mediocre performer. I did a lot of community theater when I was young, (laughs) a lot of singing roles, and I have a terrible voice. And so when I see someone not doing a very good job, I want, I actually like want to hug them. I want to give them flowers. I feel, yeah, I I maybe stand more for the mediums than the greats. You stand more if it's worse. I stand more if it's worse. (laughs) Okay. Well, sure. If it's something where somebody is not a professional, they're just following their muse or whatever. That's one thing. But what about if you're at, like, I don't know, a more formalized performance or something that, like, Shakespeare we, in the Park? Or yeah. Something like we that. were at my daughter's college graduation a couple weeks ago, and I forget the exact moment, but there was a moment where there was going to be, like, an enforced standing ovation. And I looked at my wife and I was like, I'm not standing for this. And then everybody stood up and I was like, All right, here we go. And then I was just standing because the social pressure was yeah. so great for me. Right. Are you a, a, an auto. Ovation standard, Passarello? Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, I, I, I try not to stand if I don't love it. Really? Uh, yeah, but unless everyone around is, is standing, because then you're then making an even louder comment, which is like, I really hated this, because you're like, I'm the only one who refuses to stand. But in general, I like the idea that you would only see a standing ovation a few times in your life, like when you you literally just couldn't stay in your chair right. anymore. I will say in, in the sideshow, we had falling ovations, which what? is where, which was when... Um, I'm listening. <laughs> when one of the audience members would see one of the acts, like the human pincushion, which is where you stick you know, long corsage pins into someone's skin. And the, and the falling ovations were the people who just fainted, just f- fell to the crowd. And so backstage, someone would be like, oh, we got another falling ovation. Someone get a cup of water. And oh, my God. That would be, yeah. not once has someone fainted during Livewire. <laughs> that would be yeah. the greatest... A, like response ever to trying to do something shocking, right? Yeah. Well, new goals, new goals, Luke. Yeah, yeah. it's just yeah. important to keep pushing yourself. If one person doesn't faint by the end of this show, I'm really bummed that that's on you, audience, at the Alberta Street <laughs> Pub. Well, Tessa, you have tamed the jar of truth. Great job. Tessa Fontaine, Thank everybody. You. Check out the book, The Electric Woman. LiveWire is brought to you by Alaska Airlines, who asks, what comes to mind when you think of Alaska Airlines? Snow drifts and husky puppies? Well, how about sunscreen and salsa dancing? Yeah, don't be fooled by the name. Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world with 1,200 daily flights and over 115 destinations like New York, Honolulu, and Mexico City. So the next time you think Alaska Airlines, think skylines, luau's, and margaritas. Find out where else they fly at alaskaair.com. Our next guest is a comedian and actor who made a great escape to the open road as a kid in a bus with his missionary family. Uh, They dropped him off outside the pub four minutes ago, so this worked out perfectly. Uh, He's performed on Conan, and he's part of the new season of Arrested Development. Please welcome Moses Storm to Livewire. Hey, good to be with you guys. I'm Moses Storm. That is my that is my real stupid name. Whenever I meet someone for the first time, they're always like, Moses, whoa. There's a name you don't hear every day. Uh, no, I do. I hear it probably every day. Um, I think there's nothing funnier to me than, uh, than being sassy 
and then immediately needing help. I was at this birthday party and there was this girl, she was yelling at an entire uh, table of now, I guess, former friends. And she goes, actually, sweetheart, I don't need to talk bad about people because unlike you, I actually have a good life. Pretty solid, sassy line to leave on, right? But then she has to turn around one last time to go, and yeah, I am going to need a ride home. (laughs) What kind of confidence is that? I, I didn't really know anyone at that birthday party, but I went to that party because sometimes I'll take an Adderall, get on Facebook, and just agree to things. Adderall is such a dangerous drug. It's an amphetamine. Basically, what happened is the government was like, cocaine is bad. And we were like, well, what if we made it blue? And they're like, you got us there. Give it to every child you know. I got prescribed Adderall. I'm, I'm severely dyslexic, so I got prescribed Adderall because I really wanted to like focus on how I can't read. <laughs> I am actually dyslexic, so it does make me a little angry when people will use dyslexia as an excuse. Like they'll they'll misspell a word in an email or a text, and they'll follow that up with like, "Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> I'm so dyslexic." No, you're thinking of stupid. And it was an accident how I got prescribed Adderall in the first place. I originally went into my doctor to get a blood test because I was scared. I, had, I was scared because I had the two worst things that you can have at the same time. And that's a headache and the internet. There is no worse combination thanks to WebMD. Have you been on worstcasescenario.com? I went on WebMD with symptoms of a headache and WebMD was like, yeah, okay, I know what that is. It turns out you've actually been dead for seven years. Great, I guess I'll stop making the payments on my Kia Sorento then. I was, uh, I was actually a very late bloomer as a kid. Like, I didn't really hit puberty until hopefully next year. And I had this long blonde hair. I had this long hair because my mom didn't know how to cut hair. She was too cheap to ever like pay for a real haircut. So she was like, oh, well, why don't I just cut it exactly like my hair, but then a little bit shorter, and then that'll be for boys. And it's not... And it was this like glowing platinum blonde because this is completely true. My mom dyed all of her kids blonde because she didn't want anyone knowing that she herself was not a natural blonde. (laughs) Even a serial killer on the run from the law in a movie would be like, no, that's too much. That is overkill. So which begs the question, like what heinous crime did my mom commit? For her to feel like it was necessary to essentially gone girl all of her kids with hair dye. (laughs) Couldn't afford haircuts. Uh, We were on on welfare growing up. Uh, And the technical term for a family on welfare, like what the government actually calls us, is a food insecure household. I never liked that term because food insecure just makes like a pretty serious issue just sound adorable. (laughs) Oh, come on, show us your food. No. Mm-mm. Like, I'm starving, not bashful. And you definitely miss out on certain things as a poor kid. Like, we never had ice cream growing up. The closest thing that we had to ice cream, and I hesitate to even call it that, every once in a while, my mom would buy us that, like, giant, clear value bucket of ice cream. Do you remember those where they were, like, too cheap to even be a real flavor? Like, we got white and we got darker white. And this is true. My mom only bought us that ice cream because she needed the bucket. At Walmart, a mopping bucket costs $6.99. The value bucket of ice cream, $4.99. It was cheaper than an empty bucket. Do you know how crappy your ice cream has to be for it to actually depreciate the value of an empty bucket? I'm Moses Storm, and I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. Moses Storm, right here on Livewire. Moses, um, can you expand a little bit on your childhood? Uh, you, you grew up, uh, your family was missionaries. You guys were, were traveling around in a bus. What was going on? When I was two years old, my parents, they sold our house in Ohio, and then they bought this old uh, Greyhound bus ripped out the seats, and then converted it into an RV themselves. 
So uh, it looked like if someone asked the fire department to build them an example of a fire hazard. <laughs> and put how many kids in it? Five. What was the, the brand of missionary work they were doing? Like, where were you going? Uh, what was their background? They made up their own thing. Did you know you could do that? No, I didn't. They made up their own religion. It was like a mixture of Judaism and Catholicism. Sort of like the greatest hits of those two. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and they just made up their own thing. Wow. And, like, so you would go and, and, and spread the word on the Storm family, you yeah. know, gospel? Yeah, so we'd go to, like, outside of a concert. We'd have those giant uh, neon signs that say, like, you know, really interest-catching things. Like, you're headed for hell. Um, but my mom is also dyslexic, so there'd be some misspellings. So it'd be like, you're headed for heel. Like, <laughs> all right. What kinds of concerts? Like who, where, where? Uh, Rolling Stones was, was a popular one. Any like music festival. Um, you know, if you guys were around in the early nineties, you'd probably be outside of this joint. Right yeah. Here. Wow, a lot cool. of, a lot of people that need to hear the, the good word. Absolutely. Um, I, I grew up in a, in a pretty religious family too. Not like we're going to move into a bus religious, mm-hmm. but everybody except us is going to hell religious. Yeah. And first of all, I internalized a lot of that, which actually was very freaky as a little kid because they're talking about the rapture. And you're like, this is really happening. You know, are we going to go up before the tribulation or after the tribulation? That's a huge difference in my life as a seven-year-old. Um, but also, we didn't get a lot of good science education. And right. That was something for you, too? Yeah. I mean, I know, like, basic things about science. Like, I know, like, photosynthesis is caused by the devil. <laughs> hurricanes are pure witchcraft uh yeah no it wasn't it wasn't a lot of school it wasn't homeschool um we we technically were homeschool but that is such a generous term for what yes. we did it was it was essentially no school um did any of that upbringing did that propel you into into wanting to perform I think, yes, it did in the way of like, oh, I'm good at nothing else. <laughs> I can't, I'm not going to go into like paralegal law having no, no background in, in, in school or anything. So I was like, oh, okay, I could technically perform. So I'll just, I'll lean into that. I have no plan B. <laughs> this is it. Did you, I mean, um, did you guys sing songs? Like, were you a performancey family? Uh, we would do like skits. Like, uh, but they had like a heavy religious undertone. <laughs> undertone is is obviously too polite for it. The church that we went to would do these plays. Well, one of them was about a Christian song computer called Colby, and there was a series of musicals around this Christian song computer. I was in God Uses Kids, Colby Five, and we took this show on the road to like malls. <laughs> Yeah. And homeless shelters. And some of these malls were in Canada. I was thinking about the person that was just trying to go to pay less shoes <laughs> yes. and saw me playing Tony the bad kid uh, in Colby Five, God Uses Kids. Right? What about the people hearing your uh, family? That's what songs? I was thinking about. Imagine you're just a nice person trying to go to Rolling Stones, you're trying to come down from acid, <laughs> and then you got this neon sign in your face and you have a two foot tall kid saying, You're headed for heel. <laughs> <laughs> Moses Storm, everybody. Thank you guys so much. This is Livewire Radio. We're talking about great escapes this week, and our next guest made one for sure. First, as a boy in Somalia, he escaped into the world of American action movies and pop culture, and then he managed to make his way to America for real after winning the Green Card Lottery. He detailed that journey on This American Life and the BBC. His new memoir is Call Me American. Please welcome Abdi Noor Iftin to Livewire. Abdi, welcome to the show. Thank you. What a fun. It's it's uh, so great to have you here. Uh, I, like a lot of people, I think, first heard your story on This American Life. Um, but I, I almost feel like uh, that piece, amazing as it was, left out a really formative part of your life because uh, it kind of starts with this guy, Abdi, is trying to win the green card lottery and he's at a cyber cafe. But what we didn't get to find out, which we find out in your book, was just how unbelievably dangerous and intense your life as a young person was in Somalia during the the Civil War. Can you try to describe for people that don't know about that a little bit about what life was like there? 
I was five years old when the war, uh, the civil war began, and uh, and everything had been uh, destroyed to ashes. I talk about it in the book. It was uh, 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 at a point where we wished for death because everything was, you know, um, uh, and, extremely and I think dangerous. If, if I just heard you say that and I hadn't read the book, I would think maybe he's overstating it. But when you read about how hard life was for people in Somalia, um, y- you can understand how somebody would see that as actually being a relief. I mean, it's... it. it to be honest with you, once I knew this about your life, I was amazed that that you are able to be the sort of outgoing, you know, a person that you are. It just seems like it would be so hard to overcome that stuff. How have you done that? Well, I mean, you know, when when we realized that uh, we were leaving, we were not dying anyway. So <laughs> the war itself had become something fun for us to just live through. It's like we were chasing after the militias and just collecting bullets for them and, you know, and, and trying to make some kind of living out of that. And then the U.S. Marines have landed when they saw these pictures of uh, young children of my age on the newspapers, you know, flies landing on their faces and all that. And then they decided to humanitarily intervene. And so somehow that had uh, that had become like a real movie for me, just see the Humvees and the uniforms all over the streets. And I would... I would uh, go follow them all over the place you know, because of the food that they were, you know, throwing out from their pocket pockets. And, uh, and, but most importantly, just looking at them face to face in the eyes and saying like, you aliens landed from the air, you know, from, from the sky, like, who are you? So that was the point where they're like, they have been somehow trained and, and told a few sentence in uh, Somali. And then they would say something to us uh, in Somali, but we didn't understand it. But they weren't the only ones trying to learn at least some part of a language that they didn't speak because you became obsessed with, uh, with them, with speaking English, with American action movies, and, and even with Michael Jackson. Like, can you kind of describe what this improvised like movie shack was that your neighbor had? Yeah, um, she was uh, part of this movie theater that, was, that existed in the city before the war started. And the war happens, and a year after the war, she comes back to the city to rediscover or re, you know, redo what she was working on. But unfortunately, everything is destroyed. So she goes back to her house and she has somehow saved a little a television and uh, a pile of uh, cassettes. And she tries to, you know, replay. But unfortunately, at this time, Somalis are going through a thinking where because the war happened and we're all dying, you know, and we have two great problems happening here, the war and the famine. And it's because God... Somalis are very religious. They believed that God was angry, that there were movie theaters in the city at the time. So at this point, people were trying to avoid any movie theaters to come back. So that's when I talk about my book where my mom does not want to me. She says, it's the devilish place. Don't even go in. Yeah, she won't even go in your room, right? Because you have like movie posters and stuff. No, well, she walks into my room, but she finds a picture of Madonna in bikini. (laughs) <laughs> in my room and in Mogadishu in Mogadishu and I'm I'm uh, seven eight years old and I, I you know I love the woman uh, of course in bikinis <laughs> but but my mom says that's a devil thing so she she tears it and uh, kicks me out of the house uh, for that and so um, be- because she she thinks like the war happened because of some things like this she didn't want us to die and go to hell we're talking to Abdi Nor Ifton his new book is Call Me American. So eventually you were able to make your way uh, to Nairobi and you somehow won one of the green card spots, but they were rounding up Somali men who were in Nairobi. And so you had to, even though you had gotten further along in this process of, of being able to come to America than, than would have been expected, you had to basically hide out in Nairobi so that you didn't get arrested because you needed to get to this interview. Mm-hmm. This was all stuff that was uh, on the BBC and also part of This American Life. How did you get hooked up with the person from the BBC who documented your story? Um, the BBC guy, Leo, calls me one day. He says, I heard you won the lottery and I'm, you know, putting together a story about this lottery. So what do you see? And I'm whispering, I'm saying like, I can't talk right now. Mm-hmm. I'll call you tonight. And he says, why are you whispering? What's going on? I say, the police are after me. And he's like, okay, I'll call you tonight. So uh, three hours later, he calls. He's like, what happened? Why were you whispering? And I'm like, well, the camp police are after the Somalis because there was the, uh, um, the attack of the Somali Islamist groups. And interestingly enough, the Kenyans decided all Somalis are a problem. So they were just thinking of sending us back to the country. So the whole story from the lottery 
turns into, you know, and he says, let's do an uh, audio diary in this. So he wasn't, he was not sure if I would ever make it to the United States, but he was interested in like this guy who wins the lottery from Somalia and the entire community being, you know, uh, 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 targeted by the Kenyan police. So what's going to happen? He was looking for at the end of this entire story and eventually becomes Abdi and, Abdi and the Golden Ticket in This American Life. Right. And I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but Abdi did make it to America. <laughs> uh, to Portland, Maine. How was it when you got there? How did finally getting to America and being in America compare with all of the fantasizing that you'd done about America and watching action films and, and obsessively learning English and these little scraps that you could? What was it like when you actually got here? Well, I would say first, uh, uh, the night I came to America, uh, I don't have my own family. I, I didn't know any Somali in America. So these white Americans in Maine, Mainers, uh, decided to take me in. They said, we're going to sponsor you. So we have a, a big house with a horse and barn and farm and all that. So you're going to come join us. So they came, picked me up from Boston. And we were driving on 95. For those of you who know who drove from Massachusetts to Maine, at night, it's you don't see anything. It's it's dark. So it kind of, to me, it felt a little bit scary. It felt like, um, you know, one of those Walking Dead movies. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> where are these people taking me? And they didn't take, they didn't, they didn't take me to Portland. They took me uh, to a, a place about um, uh, 20 miles kind of from, from Portland called Yarmouth. And uh, we, we got into the house and they said, well, go, you know, go to sleep and we will see you tomorrow. Your and head I, must have been spinning at this I, point. I know. I, and I wasn't quite sure what I was getting into. And uh, these people that uh, I have nothing in common with except humanity you know they, they they're wise and uh at some point you could feel like you're getting kidnapped you know yeah <laughs> so i wake up in the morning i look through the window and there's deer grazing all over the place and uh there's the intermittent whoosh of the cars and you know i got down and i said what's going on here and then they <laughs> took me around for um uh they they just showed me the food that they have in the fridge and then um once we had breakfast they took me out and they said let's introduce you to the neighbors so we went, the first neighbor that we walked several hundred feet from the house, we knocked at the door and they said, don't call 911, he's with us. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so this was August 12th and August 11th, Michael Brown was, was killed by the wow. police in Missouri. Wow. And there was this whole craziness going on. So every house that we went, it was not an introduction. It was just... They were making sure that nobody called the police on you. Exactly. They didn't want to get themselves into trouble um, bringing this guy into a neighborhood that's extremely white. <laughs> and the people are like, oh, he's with you? Okay. And then the family weren't quite sure how to explain. Well, he's from Somalia. He's a refugee. So we, uh, he's staying with us until he finds his job and all of that. You know, so... Um, what does that show me? The America that I dreamed about, that I have seen in the movies, wasn't really the America that I thought it was. Yeah. It was a completely different thing. We're going to talk more about this uh, after a short break. Uh, we have Abdi Nor Ifton here. His book is Call Me American. It is incredible. Highly, highly recommend you pick up a copy. This is Livewire from PRI. Back in a moment. Hey, it's Luke. Special thanks this episode to Kelly Brook of Vashon, Washington, and Margaret Habaker Bates of Vancouver, Washington. Kelly and Margaret are part of the Livewire member community. They generously support our show each month, and gotta tell you, we are so thankful for it. Uh, donations from our listeners, folks like Kelly and Margaret, uh, it's really the only way that we can keep this Livewire project rolling along. So thank you so much, Kelly and Margaret. We couldn't do this without you. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. We're at the Alberta Street Pub in Portland, Oregon. Luke Burbank along with Elena Passarello and Abdi Nor Iftin. His new book is Call Me American. Um, Somalia is one of the countries on the, the list now of nations that their travel from those nations is banned largely to the U.S. This was upheld by the Supreme Court. What does that feel like for you as a Somali-American to, to know that that ban is in place and it, and it affects Somalia? You know, well, first of all... Um it weakens the image of America in the eyes of the world. It, it also uh, strengthens the image of the America's enemy. The group that I, uh, I escaped is called Al-Shabaab in Somalia. And now they're going all over the place with huge speakers and telling people, see this? I told you America hates Islam, right? And then for those, of, for those young men of my age who are still stuck in this uh, Somalia, who, were, who had some sort of a dream and were going to movies you know, to learn English or just, you know, listening to music, now they realize that their, um, their American dream isn't, you know, there anymore. So um, they are very vulnerable to be recruited. 
And so the, the chances of um, uh, ISIS coming back to several countries and Al-Qaeda and you know, Al-Shabaab and Boko Haram and all of these things, I don't know what the White House was thinking, but this is actually good news and a gift to this uh, kind of people. So I'm disappointed. Um, I'm the only member of my family in America. Uh, my brother, my mother, my sister, all are back there. And now they're calling me to say, are you safe? And I have never expected that someone would call me from a war zone Right. A war-torn country to tell me, are you, are you, you know, are you okay in America? And I tell them, you know, I'm flying all over the place right now. But I'm not illegal, so um, for sure nothing is going to happen to me. And then um, I'm not even considering going into Canada now. Right? Um, yeah, I, I feel uh, my American dream had been betrayed, as I say. Do you feel like any of the ideals of America, as you understood them, do you see those uh, in play too? I mean, do you think the, in a way, the American dream is still alive? Um, well, now I realize that America is divided. The Republican-Democrat thing completely drives me crazy, and this is not America that I, you know, I thought of. But um, I still think that the American dream is alive. It's not dead. I mean, you this, feel like there's hope. I feel like there's hope. Yes, this guy's not a king. He's not going to be there forever. <laughs> uh, do you still like action movies? Oh, I do. <laughs> what's yeah. your What's your current fave? Like, what do you What well, do you I, like to watch? I have seen Jurassic World two the other day, and that was. <laughs> That Pretty was good. Beautiful. That yeah. was wonderful. Yes. You still listening to Michael Jackson? Uh, I do. Abdi Nor Iftin, everybody. His new book is Call Me American. Please go get it. This is Livewire Radio. Uh, we are talking about great escapes this week. Our musical guest this hour is a Livewire favorite whose work blends science and poetry to bring strange beauty to everyday life. She released her 10th solo album this year titled The Lookout. Please welcome Laura Veers back to Livewire. <laughs> Laura, welcome back to Livewire. Hi, how are you? You are, you're not just a singer-songwriter. Uh, you do a whole bunch of different things. You, you have a children's book out about Elizabeth Cotton. Um, wh why did you decide to write about Elizabeth Cotton? And also, for those who don't know, who's Elizabeth Cotton? She was a wonderful folk musician who was discovered by the Seeger family in the 1960s in the folk revival. She happened to be their housekeeper, and one day the kids noticed her playing this beautiful music upside down and backwards because she was left-handed and played self-taught, like the wrong way, in quotes. She had been playing from a young age. She was like a virtuosic folk fingerstyle guitar player when she was 13, living in the segregated South in the 1920s. And then she gave up music for about 40 years to raise her child and work as a domestic helper in the wow. 50s, 60s, and 40s, and 30s in the, in the U.S. and the South. In any case, the Seegers gave her a platform, and then she toured her butt off from age 60 to 94, Wow. And that's when she had her music career. So for anyone who's feeling like you're too old to be creative, you can look to her and say, you know what? I can do this at any point in my life. Was she one of the first people to record Shake Sugary? Yes. And I it's actually... like one of my favorite songs. I, I actually, had no idea that it was a song of hers. She wrote that with her great-grandchildren. She raised them. They had a house. They were like a house of matriarchs living in D.C. And one of the children, actually, I interviewed for the book. Her name is Brenda Evans. And she sang that on the, the recording that you probably know. She sang it when she was 12 on the Folkways recording. And then I recently sang with her on stage. I, I reached out to her and she came to my show in DC and we sang Shake Sugary together. So it was a really beautiful full circle wow. experience. She doesn't do music anymore, but she was really helpful to me in terms of getting the book to be more accurate. All right, Laura, what uh, song are we going to hear? This is a song inspired by a poem actually by T.S. Eliot and it's called Margaret Sands. All right, this is Laura Veers on Livewire. Scuttling claws have cleaned her hands, rising and falling in the whirlpool sand. You, you turn the wheel, your eyes of green and steel, consider Margaret Sands. How the gulls cry, how the sunlight fans. Gliding above the bones of to 
a swell, she's swaying in the shells, whispering the waves. How I as I sail, straight backed and pale, her opalescent gaze. How the gulls cry, how the sunlight Gliding above the bones of Margaret That is Laura Veers, everybody. Her latest album is The Lookout. You want to find out about her tour dates? Go to lauraveers.com. That's V-E-I-R-S.com. All right, that is going to do it for our show this week. A huge thanks to our guests, Tessa Fontaine, Moses Storm, Abdi Noor Iftin, and Laura Veers. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Fully, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. And Tim Harkins is our operations director. Our editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom and A. Walker Spring. Elena Passarello is our announcer. Molly Pettit is our technical director. And our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thanks, as always, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was co-created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank member Jed Foster of Auburn, Washington, for his support. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International.